Uh, before I get into the meat of the sermon, I just want to make a commercial message for this little book again called The Episcopal Handbook. The more I read in it, actually, the more I think it's pretty good. There are some things um, in it that, you know, but by and large, this isn't bad. And if you want to, I mean, <clears throat> it has stuff in here that is just very hand. Why are some of our church doors red? You know? Well, here's what it says. Some call it tradition, others think it's just a snappy looking color. <laughs> but the deeper reason belongs to our firm belief that our churches are refuges. Like many churches, Episcopal parishes are use red to let the world know what we're about. Red is the color of Christ's blood. It is the symbol of the sacrifice of the martyrs. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it marks the holy ground that lies just beyond its doors. We like to think that red tells the world that we're a safe place. We're a peaceful place. We're a place of refuge. And there's more. But that's not a bad explanation. Carolyn Fairless, one of my colleagues from the Diocese of California many years ago, I told you this story at the coffee hour one day at Holy Family Church in Half Moon Bay. She was uh, helping a little girl who was a member of the parish there um, <clears throat> paint her nails. So they were sitting in the, in the, at the coffee hour and uh, Carolyn was painting her nails and she was painting her nails red. And while this was going on, the little girl said, you know, God just loves this color. <laughs> and, and Carolyn said, well, why is that? And she said, because red is the color of God's spirit. So something stuck. <laughs> This is Good Shepherd Sunday. I think in the old liturgy, Good Shepherd Sunday was always the second Sunday after Easter, but somehow on the fourth Sunday now, we, we read one of the passages about Jesus as the Good Shepherd from John. It resonates with me to some degree because I, this was the, my Greek test in seminary when I had to translate out of Greek into English was the Good Shepherd passage. So chapter 10, Father Edward says, okay, translate it. So I did a half, you know what, job with it, but <laughs> at least pass out of the thing. So what I thought I'd do today is to say something about uh, some things that have been on my mind during Eastertide I haven't mentioned much. Um, I want to talk about the book of Acts because we read in the great 50 days of Easter from the Acts of the Apostles and normally uh, most of the time that's the first lesson. So we read two New Testament lessons before the gospel during the great 50 days and the book one from the book of Acts is first. If we decide to read from the Hebrew Bible and there are readings to do that then Acts is always second. So Acts has some primacy of place uh, in the great 50 days. So I want to say something about Acts, and I want to say something about a line that stuck out to me. Uh, it always does. There is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no under, another name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So that's one of the places that people who are big on this look to for something we call in theology the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So I want to say something about that. And then I want to say something about the reading from John about the Good Shepherd. In my view that the Good Shepherd story is another a description of another template that we perhaps understand Jesus to be for our own spiritual life and development and how the Good Shepherd passages are important uh, in that sense. And so that you and I uh, can and need to cultivate a pastoral sense of our Christian responsibility as we, as we live in the world. And we'll see how that plays itself out. The book of Acts, I would guess the, the, the reigning view among New Testament scholars, at least the ones Episcopalians read and others uh, of, of that frame of mind, Roman Catholics and others, would say that the same person who wrote Luke wrote the book of Acts. So it, it's a two-volume set. There's no reason to disbelieve it wasn't somebody named Luke, although the name doesn't appear in any of those, in, in any of those, either of those works. And there's no reason to believe that Luke wasn't a physician. The tradition says that he was, and certainly in the gospel there are more stories of healing uh, in his gospel than in any of the other gospels. And so healing must have loomed large for him. And healing also is present in the book of Acts when we see now this ability to, to manifest the presence of God through healing is made present through the apostolic witness, through St. Peter and the other apostles and Christian people. So it was important. And in addition to that, in the book of Acts, we have also again... Um, more mention of the issues of social justice and equity than in any of the other Gospels. Uh, for Luke, uh, those issues about our economic life, the right use of possessions, all of those things are very important, and these things are uh, discussed and, and uh, present in the book of Acts. I would guess that it's fair to say that I agree with the other pieces of scholarship that suggest that Acts was written before Paul was martyred because if he had been martyred it certainly would have been mentioned in the book of Acts and it is not. So that means that we would date this sometime around 60 to 62 AD and remember Paul's writings date from about 50 to about there. And Paul was martyred on the road uh, from Ostia to Rome and the site of his martyrdom or the church, St. Paul's outside the walls is, is there and you can visit that ancient church when you go there and see. So I would say that's where we would, we would date it. This is a story about these things. Here's what Luke wants to do. To defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion which was something that people thought the Christian church was at the time, to demonstrate, oh, would, would that be true today? <laughs> 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 
to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission. I, let me go. Alan Jones, the former, retired dean of Grace Cathedral, was on a speaking tour or some sort of a thing, and he visited some Episcopal church somewhere in the United States. And a woman came out and shook his hand, and she said, we had just a darling little church until you people got your hands on it. <laughs> so I, he said, I guess you're missing the old boutique Anglicanism that was so common in many places, and still is. So we could do maybe with a little political and social subversion of the right kind to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission. To and this is, this is interesting because what that means is that if you read the book of Acts, you will see that Luke smooths over a lot of, as my grandmother said, dear, there was tension. <laughs> in, the, in the early Christian church, you know, Paul and the Jerusalem church guys were not getting along very well. I've characterized this to you before. Did you ever see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? So Butch Cassidy and Sundance are running away, and all of a sudden they're being followed by this posse, and the leader of the posse has a straw boater hat on. You know, the guy, and he's, he's always riding out in the front. So they're running away, they do all this kind of stuff, and every time they turn around and look, or they get up on a thing, here's the guy in the straw boater hat, you know, coming right at him like this. So finally, they're at that, about ready at that famous scene where they're going to jump off, and he says, I don't know how to swim. He says, well, the fall will probably kill you, you know. So they're up there on the mountain, and they look across, down onto the plain there, and here is the guy with the straw boater hat riding after them. And so Butch Cassidy, or Sundance, finally looks at him and says, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> well, that's who I think the Jerusalem church thought about Paul. <laughs> you know, who is he out there? What is he up to, right? So their conference, the big Council of Jerusalem, all of those things are kind of uh, smoothed over, but for a purpose that may be constructive. To vindicate the part played by Paul is the next theme in Acts. In other words, he wishes to, to bring Paul into this as part of the, the plan and purposes of God. And finally, to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. Remember, Luke is a Gentile, so he's writing about now how the church is becoming um, largely Gentile and how this moves. He, he is also, by the way, Luke is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. His Greek is the best, and so clearly he is somebody who uh, it was he was versatile in this in this language and wrote about it very well. So you know a little bit about the book of Acts and, and its importance. It used to be, even in the midst of all these readings that always showed up during Eastertide, you know, there were some of the more, um, uh, well, I won't characterize them, but some of the people that taught me who said, you should never preach on the book, of, uh, on, on the, the Acts of the Apostles, you know, it's just all whatever. And now I think that view has been substantially changed. 
But what interests me today is that Peter, in his testimony, uh, first of all, just from an inside baseball biblical scholarship point of view, the same stone which the builders rejected is the chief of the corner, quoting from Psalm 118. This is a strand in, 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 in the New Testament uh, writing that is very old. And so Luke reproduces it here as part of Peter's speech, some of the early proclamation. Uh, that we see present here. So we know that this goes back right to the, to the eyewitnesses in some way. But then we have Peter say, um, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And today, uh, in many circles, and even within the tensions in the Episcopal Church, there is a group of Episcopalians uh, who really believe that we have dropped the ball because we don't hit hard enough the theme uh, of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and that there is no salvation other than uh, through Jesus. And they have a, a, a string of biblical quotations. Well, here's what I think about this, just reading it. I was sitting, when I sat there this week and I read it. First of all, Peter from the context in which he is saying this, is not giving the people in his hearing a doctrinal pronouncement about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. This is his personal testimony about his experience that for him there is no other name uh, where, whereby he is saved. And he has experienced in his own life and in his own words and works the healing power of God through the Savior's work in him both through his personal experience as an eyewitness, but also through his experience relationally as the result of this. And so drawing a line to some doctrinal pronunciamento about this that existed in principally in the Reformation period when we wanted to do this. Remember, the pre-Reformation period would have said there is no salvation outside the church. Right? So... Peter is speaking about the healing power of God, and it, it gives me the opportunity to say again, in the Greek text, sothenai means to make whole. That's what's translated as to save. It can mean to save, to make whole, or to heal. So he is speaking about now that he and his colleagues in the apostolic ministry have experienced the spiritual wholeness and the healing power of God, not only for them personally, but flowing from them as a sign of the power and the presence of God at work in the world. You know, you have all uh, been able to do that in big and small ways, and maybe you haven't given, given it the credit that it's due, you know. Someone said once, what is a, a coincidence is when God works a miracle and remains anonymous. You know? Now, let's get heavy duty and theological about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, and bear with me while I read to you from Dr. John McQuarrie, who talks about this in his book, The Principles of Christian Theology. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. 
In place of the words, the word rejected, unique, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God. For the divine Logos, expressive being, has found its fullest expression in him. Let me explain that. Logos is a word in Greek which can mean word, it can mean plan, or it can mean the operating principle. So in John's Gospel, when you read, in the beginning was the Logos, it means for John and for those who follow Jesus, particularly in the Johannine world, that for them he was the organizing principle by which they now decided to govern their lives. How was that so? Because they saw in him the highest and best that a human being could be. Not some otherworldly person, even though the descriptions in John's Gospel perhaps divinized Jesus more than any of the other gospel accounts, they saw in him a template that they could lay over their own humanity. And Dr. McQuarrie elsewhere in his book says that what we saw was somebody who had achieved the highest of their human potentiality. Okay? And by extension, so can you. This isn't sort of self-help, nuevo ajo stuff. It's, it's deeper than that. And it has something to do with uh, becoming who you already are. So, which he has brought to a new level and the nature of God for the divine logos expressive being has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. It's important to know that in, in, the, in the theological enterprise, whether it's big or small, or however you think about those things, that our perception and ability always is imperfect. We cannot know this in absolute terms. Right? And remember in the second week in after Easter when we talked about doubting Thomas, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And so you and I operate a lot of times uh, on the basis of faith about a whole lot of things. And it might be also useful to repeat again, if we stop and think about it, how much invisible stuff governs our life on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Our thoughts, our feelings, our personal history, our memories, all of those things we cannot see. And they have enormous power over us. In fact, they are the thing that is operative. What have I been saying? Our emotional states, and our thinking states operate simultaneously. We have, uh, for all intents and purposes, a liquid nervous system. So that's how, that's how that works. So I'm throwing my hat in with Dr. McQuarrie about this. 
one of the great downsides of, of, of the way many Christian people have operated through the centuries is because of their conviction in the truth of their connection with Jesus Christ, they have felt the need now to do violence to other people who have some reserve about these matters. It isn't always so, and in pockets of Christian history, we discover that there has been a far more tolerant and flexible way of operating over time that somehow then gets lost or drops down to uh, be a, a you know, little location somewhere. I know somebody who's written their PhD thesis, I don't know when it's going to get published on, what was it was like in Spain in that period during the Middle Ages where you had Muslims and Jews and Christians all living together in complete <laughs> harmony and interchanging ideas. You know, we get all the stuff about Aristotle and everything from the Muslim translators. Averroes, Avicenna, all those people. So that's how we, that's how we found that stuff before it was all Plato. Not Play-Doh, Play-Doh. <laughs> 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 All right, so be easygoing with uh, regard to those convictions. And we don't compromise the integrity of our faith and belief by uh, understanding that there is truth and wisdom in the great faith traditions. I, I, I labor to read my office every day, and in morning prayer... Um, a couple of times recently, we've been reading through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and I ran across a passage. I looked it up last night just to remind myself. Towards the end of, of uh, the book, of the Acts, Paul now has been converted. His name is Paul, and he's traveling with, I don't know, Barnabas or one of his traveling companions. And they're on their way somewhere, and it says, they were forbidden by the Spirit to go to Asia. And I had never, I'd read that before, but it just stuck out to me. Why? Right? And maybe it was because God had that under control over there. There was no need to go over there right this minute. Right? And deal with Asia. You may want to go someday and, and, and uh, uh, you know, recommend your greatest place of safety and assurance. But right now, we have other fish to fry. You know? And the fullness of time is operating in a different way. So, I offer that to you about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. In the story of the Good Shepherd, it's important to know that in Christian art, for the first 300 or 400 years of Christianity, one of the most, if not the most, frequent depictions of Jesus is as the Good Shepherd. And if you've gone to Italy and you've gone to Ravenna and you've seen the mosaics and in other places... Uh, there is, uh, it's replete with examples of Jesus with the sheep over his shoulders. And this is the image in the apostolic, in the first 400 years. You see it all over the place. The earliest depiction of, of Jesus crucified dates from about five or 600. And in the Pansioni I stayed in as a student in Rome, right across the street is Santa Sabina Church. It's a very ancient church. And on the doors of Santa Sabina is a panel with Jesus on the cross uh, depicted, and it dates from in the mid-500s. So it's the 6th sixth, sixth century. This is right where the circus was, you know, where they had chariot races and things. Clivo di Publici numero due. I still remember the address. So, in any case, 
the good shepherd is a, is a lively image to them, not Jesus crucified. And I expect that image resonates with uh, people in the ancient world more than it does for us because there were a lot more shepherds around and sheep, you know. The only experience of shepherds that I had as a kid was up around, you know, Bishop, California. I worked on a cattle ranch for two summers and the shepherds would always come by the creek when we were driving the cattle over from Nevada to the, and the Basques were there with all their dogs and with all the, all the sheep and everything, you know. And the real cowboys had reserve about the sheep guys. <laughs> I, didn't, I couldn't tell what all the shouting was about, but they weren't so hot on the sheep, you know. But the cooking was off the basket. You know, I said, get over it, just eat the food. 